Rework is brought to you by Basecamp. Basecamp is software that helps you organize the work you need to do, the work you want to do, and the people you're working with. Learn more and try it free at Basecamp.com. I brought an envelope with me uh, that I want you to hold on to. Okay. Don't open it yet. Okay. In this envelope, uh, there are four cards. They're the four jacks in a deck. You're familiar with a deck of cards, mm-hmm. right? Jacks, mm-hmm. kings, queens. The four jacks are in that envelope. And do you happen to know the suits that exist? Spades, diamonds, clubs, and... Hearts. Hearts. <laughs> Most people know the hearts, but not the others. You were the other way around. That's fantastic. <laughs> Um, So there's the red suits and the black suits. Now, I want you to imagine, our audience can follow along with this. I want you to imagine in your mind, I'm going to remove two of those cards, either the two reds or the two blacks. Which two would you like? Um, The reds. So the two reds. So we have the two red jacks in our hands, and the red jacks is the jack of hearts and the jack of diamonds. One of these I'm going to reverse and put it back in the deck. Would you like the hearts to be face up? Or the diamonds to be face up? The diamonds. The diamonds. Now, later today, you might go home and say, what if I pick the hearts? Now is the moment. Do you want to change to the heart or do you want to stick with the diamond? I want to stick with the diamond. I will take the envelope and very slowly open. And Waylon, I want you to sort of describe okay. what you're going to see Okay, Mart is envelope. pulling out the cards. They're face down in a little stack. Looking at and the back of them. One, one, two, two. <laughs> and three. And oh what is the third God. card? The third card is the Jack of Diamonds, and it's turned face up. It's the only one. And I was holding this envelope in my hot little hand the whole time. Now, this is very interesting because I actually, before I came here, I kind of knew that you would pick the Jack of Diamonds. You know how I knew? How? Because the three cards that are face down, what color are they? They're blue. They're blue. The Jack of Diamonds is the only red card <laughs> in this little stack. But, you know, I actually kind of knew that I didn't even need any <gasps> other Jacks with me. <laughs> the um, the cards are blank. The Jack of Diamonds <laughs> is the only one that was printed on that side. <laughs> I don't know how. Oh, my God. What just happened? <laughs> Welcome to Rework, a podcast about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Waylon Wong. And I'm Sean Hildner. The magician you heard at the top of the episode is Mert Isheri. He's a Chicago startup founder, and Waylon, you've wanted to have him on this show for a while now, but not to talk about his business. Right. So I met Mert a couple years ago at a dinner, and I noticed he was doing car treks, which, I mean, who does not enjoy a car trek? And then I found out that Mert likes to learn something new every year. He picks a skill like close-up magic or salsa dancing or woodworking, and he throws himself into it for a full year, which I think is really neat. Here at Basecamp, we are also big believers in learning new things just for fun. One of our benefits is a yearly education stipend that we can spend on any kind of class. It doesn't even have to relate to our jobs. Have you actually used yours for anything? Yeah, I didn't use it for years. And then last summer, I took an adult chamber music class, which was really fun. I even cool. did the recital, which if you know my history in music education, I have like a very dismal recital track record, but <laughs> I sucked it up and did the recital. <laughs> Um, And then just a few weeks ago, I took a one-day workshop on how to conduct oral histories at Columbia in New York. How about you? 
Well, I took banjo for a few years, and I took this knife throwing class that turned out to just be a couple of hippies down by the tracks with a case of beer and some very sharp knives. But we've had coworkers who have taken classes in botany, improv, cake decorating, and woodblock printmaking. Someone even got their real estate license using this stipend. It's a rare treat to be able to pick up a new hobby or skill as an adult, and there's also so much value in learning how to do something you've never done before. To be, as you'll hear Merck call it, an enthusiastic beginner. I really enjoy talking to him about what he's learned about learning and self-improvement and how it relates to his day job as a CEO. Here's our conversation. My name is Mert Hilmi Ishiri. I am from Turkey. I've been living in Chicago for 11 years now. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called SwipeSense. That's my day job. We fight to eliminate harm and waste in medicine. I get very, very excited talking about healthcare, talking about equity in healthcare, transparency in healthcare. But today is not about that. Today, we're going to talk about something very, very actually personal of mine. I do this thing where I pick a new skill to challenge myself with uh, more or less every year. It can be a little longer. It can be a little less. And when the year is over, it's not like I just quit and throw it out the window. I just don't do it as intensely. But I put some framework around this to make this a little bit more fun, a little bit more efficient, and a little bit more productive. When did you get the idea that you wanted to learn a new skill every year. Was that even the premise that you started with? It wasn't actually. So for me, a lot of this journey that I'm on right now that I, by the way, hope to be on for the rest of my life was more or less me putting a framework around what I was already doing. And I should disclose this, you know, before I share anything about the skills that I'm learning is I am no more than a humble beginner in all of these things. You know, it's very easy to come off as pretentious or, or douchey as like, because we're going to talk about chess and dancing and all of this. And these are skills that take literally not years, not decades, but lifetimes to master. So I would never pretend that I'm good at any of these things. I'm just a proud jack of all trades and master of none. I think life is just a little bit more colorful if you sort of push yourself to be on the stage and say, okay, now sing an opera. Like, it's, it's, it's a difficult place to find yourself in, but it's very, very humbling and it's very, very enriching. So it's been, it's been very, very fun for me for the past more or less decade. So this started around the time you moved to Chicago? Yes. Uh, it started when I was a student, actually, and I was studying engineering. And, you know, studying engineering is very rewarding and, and exciting, but it's sort of one thing. Like, you're learning to build you know, efficient things and the things that scale up and all of that. And I felt sort of um, limited in that world of like, well, this is, you know, there needs to be more. And, you know, just like any other college student, I got involved in student groups and stuff. You know, I would sign up for dancing and do ballroom dancing. And, you know, I'd never danced my whole life, but it was sort of like a place where it was okay for you to have never danced in ballroom dancing before. And, you know, it was like four dudes in a group of like 50 people. So I was like, <laughs> this is great. Like, I, you know, no one's going to judge me here, which a lot of this, what it comes down to is actually it's you who you're judging yourself, not other people when you're trying to pick something else up. Then I moved on to learning this martial art, Aikido, that I got obsessed with, and then I dipped my toes into Zen Buddhism. And these things, basically, once you get started, it's very easy to realize for you to be any good. You have to put serious time in it. This is basically what I do in the in the evenings and weekends. I try to master this one thing that I picked. And over the years, I've done things around, I played semi-professional chess, I did Renaissance sculpting, I did woodworking, I did card tricks, now I'm learning rock climbing. So with the chess, 
How did you figure out how you wanted to approach chess? Most of these things、uh, that I pick, they're sort of figments of my childhood. In elementary school, I was in the chess club, and then I got to high school, and I thought it wasn't cool anymore because I wanted to play basketball. But after many, many years.、Um, I discovered this thing called YouTube. I actually remember this particular moment. I watched this chess game that was played in 1963 between the former world champion Bobby Fischer, American prodigy, and、uh, Robert Byrne. He was a very good player in his own right. But it's dubbed as the game of the century. And if you know the rules of chess, you don't need to be any good at chess. But if you know the rules of chess, you watch this game, and it is. Pure harmony. It's it's beauty with sixty four squares, and I remember just feeling like my jaw just dropped and saying, "I would love to understand how to even get close to something like this." So I got an account on whatever chess dot com, and it turned out like my close friends were also former chess players when they were kids, and for as a pastime, we started playing and. Turned out that my co-founder Yuri, who's also one of my very good friends, was also into chess, and he kicked my butt. And that was not okay. <laughs> I, so I, ha- I had to get better. So I emailed the grandmaster, Grandmaster Maurice Ashley, and I said, "Hey, would you, would you be okay with tutoring me?" And surprisingly, he said yes. This is a cold email to a grandmaster. Cold email to a、uh, to Grandmaster Maurice Ashley, who's considered one of the legends of the game of chess. He was the first African American chess grandmaster in the world, which is、uh, remarkable and unremarkable at the same time, as he puts it.、Um, <laughs> But he agreed to become my teacher, and I would take you know he over Skype. I would learn this, which, by the way, is a very good sort of an intro into why this is even possible now. I mean, you couldn't do what I'm doing 20 years ago. Sure, a- a- apprenticeship and learning from people who are true masters of their craft simply wasn't available. So if you, I mean, if you wanted to learn how to be any good at chess in you know former Soviet Russia, there were literally these pioneer houses, and you could, you had to be a prodigy to even get in, to even get any kind of tutoring. Today you can get fifteen bucks per month. You can sign up for masterclass, and the former world chess champion Gary Kasparov, whom you couldn't like touch from afar, will give you hours of you know personal tutoring, which is just unfathomable that this is the case now. So that's how it got started, and I started playing in tournaments and so on and so forth. And I you know I still do this weekend. I actually have a tournament that I'm playing this weekend. <laughs> So then, was it a virtual chessboard and you screen shared, or did you have a physical chessboard and he had a physical chessboard and you would just kind of mirror? Virtual、uh, chessboard and a lot of chess training formally is actually a forced exercise of reflection. You play games and then you go over them afterwards, and you try to sort of rewire your brain about what you were thinking at the time, why you were thinking at the time, and why you won't think this way anymore because it led to your demise. You, you got checkmated.、Oh. So when you're doing this reflection, it is extremely helpful to have someone who's been through that path before. To be by you, not to judge you, not to just tell you what to do, but to be that guiding voice is sort of the Morpheus to the Neo, if you will. <laughs> you know, someone who's going to continue to push you, but not going to be a dick about it. Basically, how did you decide to enter your first chess tournament, and what did that feel like? <laughs> it was、uh, Maurice's idea, because you know I always thought. My goal in chess was just to beat people that I know, preferably、uh, Yuri, <laughs> who is my arch nemesis in chess. But then Maurice sort of sat down and said, "Well, that's kind of like a low bar because that's not real chess. I mean, you're playing for fun. I mean, that's all that's all good, but." 
Wait till you go and play with the wolves. There's people who, again, devote their their lives to this. And until you meet that level of talent, you haven't really been humbled because just beating your friends in chess is actually it's quite achievable after a couple months of uh, of training. So I showed up. I showed up at my my first tournament. And for folks who aren't familiar with how chess tournaments are, are structured, these are called scholastic tournaments. They're open tournaments, and there's a certain rating system. Which, by the way, in your whatever skill you're choosing to learn, is extremely important to have a consistent level of measurement. And uh, you know, I'm 31 years old now. Uh, my skill level is more or less a talented child. <laughs> <laughs> so the first folks that I would get paired up with were like seven, eight. And let me tell you, there's very few feelings in life that is more humbling than an eight-year-old absolutely demolishing you over the chessboard and you feeling like I'm going to fall off this chair because I just got shook by a little child. And this is another wonderful thing about the skills that I that I choose to sort of immerse myself in is I like the idea that I can do something when I'm eight years old or 80 years old. Like I would love to be an 80-year-old with a deck of cards in my hand and a chess player on the other end, like tens of skills I've collected over the years that doesn't necessarily expire. And in chess, more or less, you're always going to get better. Yes, at the professional level, there's sort of an age window where there's peak performance. But yeah, as an amateur, yeah, it's only going to get better. And this is a very good thing because by the time I'm 80, I'll have been playing chess for 50 years. I mean, that's a that's a phenomenal thing to be able to say. I've been a chess player for five decades. Yeah. In the chess tournaments, there's a time element to it? Yes. Okay. And did you feel like you were better at maybe the mental game than a child? Or do children actually have like incredible psychological uh, will and strength as well? The focus and the obsession of a child is actually something to be marveled at. So it's actually quite scary how good they are. And the only thing that separates them from someone who's been doing this for, for many, many years is just years. It takes years to get good at this stuff. But no, they're, they're incredible. And it's actually quite remarkable after the game. I don't know if I have many conversation topics to sit down and actually exchange ideas on with an eight-year-old. Like, what are we <laughs> going to talk about? But after the game, you have this analysis period where you sort of go over the game and you try to explain, well, I made this move because of this, like, over the chessboard, it's war. But afterwards, it's you're both trying to learn and how to play a better game. It's an amazing experience to actually exchange concrete ideas with an eight-year-old, which is very, very surprising to do in any other context. And you can be 80 years old or eight years old, and it's the same language that we're speaking. So it's it's quite an amazing feeling to experience this in the context of, in this, in this case, chess. Yeah. When you were playing chess, did you ever catch a hint of that harmony that you felt when you were watching the Bobby Fischer video? Absolutely. Of course, I would never claim to be at the, at that level. But the, this feeling is actually, I've, I've reflected on this quite a bit, and it's the feeling that books have been written on. It's called Flow. I think it's the original idea is credited to a, a scientist named Mihail Csikszentmihalyi or something. It's a very hard last name. But the idea is an optimal match between a challenge and a skill. If a challenge is too hard, you'll quit because it's a bit frustrating. It's like climbing a straight wall. If a challenge is too easy, like just hopping over a curb, well, it's not really meaningful. This match between something that's just a little harder than what you're comfortable with and the sense of success and the feeling you get of fulfillment once that challenge has been overcome is very, very evident in chess because you get typically paired with people of your simply a close enough skill level. I felt that feeling uh, a couple of times in chess, and it's just, 
man, it's it's such a joyful feeling. This this is one of the reasons why I do this because this feeling is very very addictive. You know, not every addiction is bad, and I found myself sort of chasing this kind of an emotion for you know for the good part of the rest of my life. I hope. Yeah, because that idea of flow of finding something that challenges you just the right amount to be really satisfying that is something that you bring with you on each new. Endeavor, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's what you're that's what you're chasing after, and hopefully, by the way, that this artificially created sense of flow kind of follows you in the rest of the things that you do in life. I mean, in your relationships, in your work, in your professional. You know, my day job is is I'm an entrepreneur, and I really care about what I do. So, yes, I change this annual skill once a year, but my craft as a CEO remains constant, and I approach it the same way as a student of this overall video game that I'm trying to sort of level up in. Do you always、um, do private lessons for these skills? Actually, much bigger part of this is peer learning. If you surround yourself with other people who are also really into cooking, well, that's wonderful because you're going to teach each other. There's going to be a sense of community, and you're going to find people who are a little bit better than you, or going to be a little bit worse than you, and everybody is looking at the same direction. They're not looking at each other. They all want. To be a better cook, they all want to be a better chess player, a better dancer. This is way bigger of a for learning environment from peers who more or less are are with you in this in this journey. In addition, it's very helpful if you have sort of this I call this the Library of Alexandria. There's tremendous amount of tutorials on climbing on YouTube. I mean, just Google like bouldering on YouTube, and there's literally weeks of content. You will never be able to get through all of this. This is very good to be able to find something that's enriching as this. Another component is affordability. I mean, you know, a chessboard is twenty bucks on Amazon. Chess tutorials on YouTube are free. The idea is that you should pick something that you can overdo. That's not necessarily bad for you. So, for instance, I considered learning how to play poker. I enjoy watching whatever poker tournaments and whatever.、Uh, but it's kind of bad if you overdo poker. I mean, you can <laughs> gambling addiction is a serious problem, and I sort of I, so I steered away from that.、Mm-hmm. But if you overplay chess, well, you know, you play chess for four hours. It's not the end of the world. After the break, Mert talks about finding time, staying humble, and how this part of his life intersects with his day job. But first, Sean, you're in Japan right now. Well, sort of. I mean, right now I'm in the same room as you. But at the time this comes out, I'll be in Tokyo for a little vacation, and obviously I planned the whole thing with Basecamp. So there's about seven of us going on this trip, just a bunch of friends and neighbors, and we have a bunch of stuff on the schedule, like reservations at the robot restaurant and the Pokemon cafe. Mostly food related and robot related <laughs> and robot related. Mostly, yeah, it's mostly food and robots. I've made a to do list of all the neighborhoods we want to visit, and then organized the rest of the stuff by neighborhood. So when we're there, we can just bring out our phones, click on the to do item that has Shinjuku, and it'll list all the things we decided we wanted to do in Shinjuku. Can you、um, find this snack food that our coworker sent me a picture of? It's popcorn that tastes like bubble tea. Gross, but sure, <laughs> I will try my hardest. Whether you're planning a vacation, learning something new every year, or doing something boring like organizing the release of a new software product across four teams under a strict deadline, Basecamp can help. Basecamp combines everything you need to manage projects and people in one organized place. Check it out for yourself at Basecamp.com. This process you describe in chess of reflecting on. What you just did, and trying to go back and visit. Why did I make this decision, and where did it lead me, and what could I do the next time that would be different? Is that something that 
translates to different skills that you pick up, like learning how to be that reflexive? Uh, absolutely. I mean, reflection is how you grow in life, period. You know, there's a wonderful rap line. I think J. Cole said this. There's no mistakes in life, only lessons. And the idea is it's a lesson if you reflected and took something from it. Not only I apply this to every skill that I'm picking up, I actually apply it to, to swipe sense. Every six months, we have this effort where we sort of wind back the clock and said, what advice would we give to ourselves if we were there with us from the time machine? And it's okay to be humble and, and admit that things always didn't go your way. And that's kind of learning anything new. You have to give yourself this permission to fail, if you will, and understand that that's part of the journey. There are no mountains without the valleys. It's what makes it so rewarding. So absolutely, it's a dedicated effort of reflection and not being embarrassed by it. Not being embarrassed that, oh, I made that mistake one time. You should put it on a banner and celebrate that you made this mistake <laughs> because hopefully by doing so, you won't make it again. That I find to be a, a big component of all of this, a sort of a value that transcends the skill that you're trying to learn. Is it always pretty obvious to you by the end of, let's say, the year what you want to do next? Or have you ever been kind of casting about for something you want to do? I actually ca start casting the net around September. And again, now I'm at the point where more or less this has fall, fallen into a schedule. So it is kind of an annual thing, a little longer, a little less. But no, the, what better way to find out whether you're going to like something than actually doing it? For instance, one of the years that I wanted to do was, was drumming. I really enjoy rap music. And I figured, oh, I, I want to learn how to make rap beats. And it, to do that would be how to learn drums and, and percussion. And I found a little place that, you know, gave drumming lessons and whatever. But the teacher and I just, like, didn't get along. It wasn't as energizing. Like, it almost felt like the, the gentleman didn't want to be in the room <laughs> with the rest of us. <laughs> and it was just sort of like, hey, look, I'm not doing this out of a favor to you or, or me. Like, I, I want to be excited uh, to be here. So that sort of died down. But how else are you going to find that out unless you actually show up at that class? Other times it's completely random. Like, the way I got into sculpting is just there happened to be a little art studio outside of our office called Lil Street. And, you know, I would go there for lunch and I saw that their classes for the winter session was beginning around clay modeling, like sculpting. It's like adult Play-Doh, as I call it. <laughs> Play-Doh for grownups. And I thought, well, you know, I used to want to be an architect when I was a kid. Like, it's cool to, you know, build things with your, with your hands and what have you. So I just did it. I just took sort of one class one evening and I just immediately got hooked. Yeah. So it's like sometimes you're working with your hands. Sometimes it's full body movement, like with the salsa dancing. Totally. It really runs the gamut. Totally. I mean, there's many others that I've considered that I haven't even tried yet. So I think super interesting things like gardening would be a phenomenal example for this. Like even if as simple as like learning how to grow bonsai trees, like obsessively you know, trimming the, the branches or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like, what kind of a mind does that? That's very interesting. Or, I don't know, painting. My sister's an oil painter. And I always sort of had this yearning to understand her more and her work more by being a painter by itself. This, by the way, there's a very simple selfish reason why I do all of this is the enjoyment you get out of that activity that you already liked already. Take something like stand-up comedy, which, again, would be a good uh, example for an annual challenge. If you like stand-up comedy, try, just try to write a joke. And you will appreciate the stand-up so much more, so much more after having gone through the experience of how ridiculously painful and difficult it is to put a set together. A lot of this is that, is my enjoyment out of the activity that I already liked is amplified by multitudes by actually putting myself on the proverbial stage and getting up from the audience is a big way of doing that. 
Does pursuing this kind of stuff seriously take drawing some real boundaries around your work life to make sure that you do protect your evenings and your weekends for this? Absolutely, you have to put in real time. Like it takes discipline to get good at anything. Putting in real hours is absolutely an ingredient to this, and the only way to do that is, you know, having somewhat of a, a predictable means of what it means. That's your professional life and what's outside of your professional life. I believe that it's an accomplishment of a company to actually say, yeah, forty hours per week. It's not that we. Don't work hard. We work really hard. We just work very efficiently. And yeah, you look every once in a while. We'll have some crisis. Every business goes through it. You got to like do do it over the weekend, whatever. Like that's accepted. And for folks who are you know listening and thinking, well, I would never be able to do this as well. If you've seen every single episode of Game of Thrones, you probably do have time. But you just chose to put it in Game of Thrones versus learning chess. And there's nothing wrong with watching Game of Thrones. It's an awesome show. But the idea here is that time is there if you're willing to seek it and, and grab it for the things that you want to put into it. And if the work is so overwhelming that you don't have time for this, make sure your boss reads. It doesn't have to be crazy at work, and <laughs> maybe it will get better. <laughs> Do you find that in conversations with other adults that it's maybe hard for them to – get into the same headspace that you have like as an adult you have like so many insecurities like so hard to get out of your own head it's like so hard to be bad at stuff <laughs> especially in front of other people like i'm trying to think about all the things that would prevent me from throwing myself into a completely new activity and it's like all those things it's like all the like the mental game do you think you just have like a personality type that allowed you to like not have those insecurities like really paralyze you? Not necessarily. I think I've just experienced them so many times that it doesn't bother me anymore. And I think more or less this is the only way to get rid of those insecurities. I mean, the noise you're describing is very real. Nobody likes to be poked at and said, hey, look at this beginner. They suck. They just fell when they were ice skating. Let's all point and laugh. Well, first of all, if there are people around you who say this, this is a great filter to have those people not in your life because you <laughs> don't need that true. kind of energy from <laughs> professionally or personally. Just leave those people behind. But you realize more or less this voice is not really external but internal. You actually don't want to be seen like this. You are the one telling yourself, ah, you're a beginner. I mean, to that voice, I just turn around and say, hey, it takes a long time to get good at anything. I am proud to be a beginner in this, and I really hope to master this, this thing one day that I'm trying very hard at. Thank you very much. This is the same mind that's saying the first thing, right? And you can choose which one of these am I going to feed? Am I going to feed the one that's doubtful and insecure or the one that is genuinely passionate about getting better at this? And I try to reflect this to different parts of my day-to-day -day as well. Like I've said, professionally, you know, at Swipe, since this is one of our core values, we we take pride in this kind of approaching new ideas. It's scary to change your pricing. Hello? Nobody likes it. I mean, what if we lose our customers? What if people don't pay us that? What if the former customers are paying a lot? All of that, it's immediately in your head. Always, always, always. How are you going to know if you don't try? I mean, th this kind of freedom that you give to yourself also allows you to appreciate the joy of the pride, the pride of completing something beautiful. You know, one of my annual challenges was woodworking. And I remember I made this table. And boy, this sturdy table that, you know, I put my hands on it. And it's because I'd spent like many, many hours sanding this top and the bottom. And nobody was going to see the bottom, but I knew it was going to be there. And this sense of like, I completed this thing and I'm proud of this. Even the parts that no one else is going to see, I know it's going to be there. 
There's no different than writing good software. Writing good code is like building that table. Maybe no one's going to see the comments or the documentation or the, the, the proper push notifications that you wrote in, but you know that they're there. Um, you only get to appreciate this if you actually put yourself out in the arena. And I just point out to the good parts for folks who want to get started in things like this, is you get the good parts if you accept the bad parts, if you accept and give yourself the permission to fail and get back up. And that's a, that's a really fun way to live life that way. How did you get into magic? <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, I was that kid also. <laughs> I was like, pick a card, any card. Like that was my, that was like along, I guess, along with my, uh, my chess habits. I, you know, grew up in Turkey, in Istanbul. And, you know, the pastime for my parents, it was, you know, Friday nights, they would have friends over and they would, you know, play cards. And it wasn't for real money. I think it was like for uh, equivalent of five bucks or something. But it was sort of a way to socialize. Uh, but <laughs> they would always say no for kids. We had this drawer where all the playing cards were, and I would take it out of the drawers and shuffle these cards and feel like, oh, my God, I have, I have touched these <laughs> the magical things. Fruit. The forbidden fruit is in my hands now. So, I, you know, my way of, like, interacting with cards was doing card tricks, and I would read books about these. And, again, it's a solitary exercise. You can spend many, many hours trying to perfect a false cut or a force of a card or, or whatever it is. And you also feel like you're in on something that – the rest of the world isn't. There's a real craft there. I mean, people genuinely spend lifetimes not just performing, but creating magical effects. I got into it because there's a place in Chicago called the Chicago Magic Lounge. This city used to be known to be a hub for other magicians to come in and, and, and practice and improve their craft. So the Chicago Magic Lounge is sort of a remix of that idea. And I went there and I immediately turned into a 70-year-old child. I was like, oh my God, I am an adult and I love this thing. That night I went back home, I went on YouTube, how did he do that? What did the card come out? Whatever, and all of this. And for um, folks who are interested in, in magic, and there's a concept in magic, there's sort of two sides to every magic trick. There's a method and there's the effect. Most of us think of the effect. Wow, the magician found the card. Great job. Congratulations. Let's move on to the next trick. For magicians, this is almost predictable and very boring. For the magician, the method is how did that happen is much more interesting than the outcome because we know the card is going to be found. I became obsessed with the method. And, you know, I would practice with my friends, have a peer group. I became a part of this group called the Chicago Magic Roundtable. And that's how I decided to spend my, my year in magic. Did you find it to be open? It seems like magic is one of these realms where people like to guard it very closely as well. And there's a lot of secrets. But did you find that even as an enthusiastic beginner, you were able to gain entree into this world? Again, it comes down to your genuine passion about the craft. Um, magicians are keep their secrets closely because for most lay people, people who aren't interested in practicing the, the craft, finding out how a trick is done sort of kills the whole thing. We want to believe that the laws of physics bent for that one moment and that card came out of that pocket. How in the world did that happen? And this is very exciting and quite beautiful. This is what the art is about. It's about surprising and this delightful moment of, oh my God, no, that did not just happen. This is wonderful. And that feeling gets killed if a trick is revealed. That being said, for a magician to meet another magician 
it is as open as it gets because we both love the same thing. We love the method. We understand. We want to understand how it happened. We want to maybe build on it, maybe take away some parts of it, make it even simpler. This kind of thinking is sort of, I guess, similar to software development. I mean, software development seems like a very closely guarded, uh, how do I ever end, begin programming and so on and so forth. But once you get into the open source community, you realize everybody's sharing everything with each other. Everybody's Googling problems <laughs> and solutions and finding them out on their own. Yeah. Finding out a magic trick is actually quite easy. You can just Google the trick and, you know, find out the author and figure out how it's done and so on and so forth. It's it's all out there. It's actually not closely guarded at all. You can just YouTube a lot of these tricks and find out how they're done. The question is, are you willing to put in the work? If you're willing to put in the work to actually understand, appreciate, practice, people on the other side are more than inviting to make you part of their community. And of course, be a nice person. I mean, people like to be surrounded by kind, genuine people. And that has nothing to do with whether you're into magic or not. I mean, if you're an asshole, well, you know, you're not going to be part of a magic group or a tennis group for that matter. You're just not going to be part of anything. <laughs> Did you ever get to perform magic? Do any of these years culminate in a big showcase or performance, or is that not usually part of the structure? It is actually a big important component of these things is to make some sort of an external commitment. It's to kind of keep you accountable. I find that I hold myself accountable much, much more efficiently if I tell others, hey, I'm going to climb that mountain. So for example, this year is rock climbing, and at the end of it, I'm going to climb this mountain in France called Mount Lille. Whoa, Uh, okay. You've got the mountain picked out. (laughs) I have the mountain picked out. And it's considered to be sort of the birth of, uh, you know, mountain climbing. Oh, is that why you chose it? it? I chose this one. And it's also an easy climb, so I I don't have to kill myself to actually do something. Um, (laughs) You're not like free soloing. (laughs) No, no, no. That was a big reason why I picked climbing is because of Alex Honnold. Because I watched it and I was like, oh my God, my mind is blown. I have to understand this a little bit more. Like, how does it get to do this? And, you know, I enjoy the experience now. But the idea is by putting something external out there, you're sort of creating a benchmark for yourself. And look, whether you meet that goal or not meet that goal is actually not the point. You're you, what you get out of it is what you put in. So, so what? You didn't meet the goal and you didn't meet the goal. Uh, magic for me is similar to that. Most of this is uh, me performing to my friends, my, you know, like during lunch at work, like, hey, pick a card, any card. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that people do it because they actually enjoy it, not because I'm the CEO of the company. It gets a little <laughs> awkward sometimes. So I try to min- minimize my magic time at work. But the idea here is, uh, you know, I basically told my friends that we're having a, a big magic show in my place. It's actually scheduled to happen in, in March. You can come if you like to Wayland. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's not a formal thing. I'm not going to charge people to do it. It's just sort of me for me to show for an hour, hey, this is what I gave my year to. And, you know, how it goes, who knows? But the idea that it's a performance and it's something you put in work and you have a script for and something of more package than just doing one trick here and there. Um, I liked what you said about how in magic you have the method and the effect, because in some ways it seems like there's also this dichotomy between like theory and practice. Like when you were doing sculpture, you could have gone like a very esoteric route, like what is like the theory behind yeah. sculpture? And it sounds like you went a very kind of practice route, right? It's like, I'm making this thing. Or like in woodworking, it's like, I made a table, right? But it seems like you're kind of faced with an interesting choice of like, how far do I want to go down the theory of something versus the actual practice of it? This is a personal preference of mine that I'm so glad you pointed out to. I'm a much bigger believer in just putting yourself out there and just doing that thing. If you try something out for yourself and you try to improve at it, it's the theory makes way more sense rather than just reading a book about it. Put yourself out there, fail, and then it will make way more sense why certain advice is given. 
Of course, I'm not saying don't study these things or don't find mentors or apprentice uh, methods or peers that are around you because you can also build bad habits if you just pretend that you know all the answers and you do things on your own. So I'm not advocating that for one bit. But the idea that you take a class in magic and never actually show anybody a magic trick, it's sort of like a pointless exercise and it all exists in your head then. The point of these things is actually experience them in your hands. I I'm a very fidgety person. I like having things in my hands and like I like getting hands on. So woodworking is a good example for that is that you can read a library about how to build a table or you can just get out there and build kind of a crummy table that will definitely break. That's okay. The next table will be a little bit better. And this sort of humbling trial and error is a wonderful, wonderful approach to picking up, up new skills. Yeah. Do you ever feel pressure to monetize any of these interests? I've been thinking about this recently, how we're living in this time now where everyone feels like they need a side hustle or everyone feels like they need to like perform their hobbies on social media or monetize them or open an Etsy store. Like, I feel this pressure, like, you can't just, like, enjoy something for its own sake. It has to be, there has to be some kind of, like, capitalist outcome to it. <laughs> I, I could not be further from that. Like, I almost think it taints the, the purity of what you're trying to do if you're doing it to seek outside approval uh, or money. I mean, there's nothing wrong with making a living as a chess player or a magician or, or a dancer. It's, it's a wonderful way to practice your craft. And, but I think you only get to pick one craft that you decide that is your life's craft. Uh, for me, it happens to be the CEO of my own company at SwipeSense. And I chose it because I, one, genuinely appreciate the craft of entrepreneurship, of actually building something and having be meaningful and pursue a mission. And our mission happens to be something that's very close to my heart. It's literally to save lives in hospitals. There's a tremendous amount of lives lost and harm caused in hospitals every year due to medical errors. And not just harming people, but we literally bankrupt them because of the amount of waste that exists in healthcare. I've chosen to build a company that helps to fix that in, in our humblest contribution. That craft has been going on for eight and a half years, and I'm so lucky to have found that calling in life, and I want that to be my bread. I want that to be the engine of the car. These skills are the exhaust fumes, if you will. (laughs) But the idea, hopefully, is if you haven't found that calling in life, perhaps picking up a skill or two will give you what it feels like to have found that thing. And if you're not feeling that feeling in your day-to-day job, maybe it's time to keep searching. Rework is produced by Waylon Wong and me, Sean Hildner. Music for the show is by Clipart. You can find Mert on Twitter at MHI, and his company is called SwipeSense. Their website is swipesense.com. I will link to all this stuff in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at rework.fm. And we are on Twitter at Rework Podcast. Anything else we should plug? Sean, do you have a SoundCloud for all your banjo music, like your many versions of Rainbow Connection? Oh, man, Waylon, I am very not good at banjo. How about this? If 50 of our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, I'll come in and play a tune on the banjo. Okay, then we'll let Mirth close things out. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. We just performed a... Uh, a classic trick by a wonderful, wonderful magician. Her name is Max Maven. And Max is considered to be one of the legends of magic. And, and he invented this. This is uh, my little gift to you. Does that take a lot of practice, that particular <laughs> trick?
It does and it doesn't. Um, there's genuinely just four cards in here. Yeah. Um, so there's not a lot of sleight of hand involved. But the secret is a little deeper, if you will. Uh, but even that takes practice to actually perform well as well. I'm so glad it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my mind is genuinely blown. <laughs> wow. This has been so fun. This has been so fun. Come back anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.